Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, and welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I had an opportunity to speak with David Puglesi of The National Post, and The National Post had an exclusive interview with Admiral Mark Norman. You'll hear what David Puglesi told us about that interview. Also, Mike Smith from the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio. Mike on his investigative reporting on the $7.4 billion in money laundering in British Columbia just last year. There is going to be a public inquiry. Chachi Curl of the Angus Reid poll on what gasoline prices are doing to Canadians. Some 40% of Canadians are saying it's causing them problems paying for the essentials of life. And Dan McTague from GasBuddy.com on the whys of Canada's gas pains. That's some of what you'll be hearing on the podcast this time. Coincidence? Maybe. Sound like another case? Maybe. It certainly has everyone in this country paying very close attention. And we do want to hear from Admiral Mark Norman. And you can't escape the fact that $441,000 was pledged to GoFundMe, the GoFundMe campaign for the Admiral. That speaks to the connection, the visceral connection, the Admiral in this case have with the rest of the country, with people in the rest of the country. And there was just a sense that something really, really wrong was taking place here. And the more we found out, the more disturbing it became. So on uh, Friday, I read a, a column in the uh, National Post, The Fight of Your Life, in a post-media exclusive, Mark Norman tells his side of the story. And uh, it's written by David Puglesi of The Ottawa Citizen. And uh, what I also noticed on Twitter was one tweet after another, after another, after another, after another, from people from all walks of life and all uh, levels of experience saying, this is a must-read, this is a must-read, this is a must-read, and it is. So the uh, National Post, with David Puglesi have the exclusive Mark Norman interview, and Dave joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Thank you very much for taking the time, Dave. Really appreciate this. You're welcome. How recently did the Admiral speak to you for the article? Um, he spoke to me uh, well just several days before the uh, article uh, article was uh, published. So you know, I probably had about like three days to write it. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of work. That's a, this is an amazing piece. It really <laughs> is. Yeah. It's so filled with information. How's his mood? Um, he seems pretty uh, upbeat. Uh, you know, the legal uh, the legal challenge is is over, and now he's I guess uh, preparing for what comes next. He's a little bit uh, vague on what comes next because uh, um, I don't think he wants to. Uh, uh, you know, he can be um, he can still be charged under military regulations, uh, depending on what he says. He's still covered by military regulations, so he's, he's very very careful on what he's been saying. Yeah. Now the article article begins with the Admiral's wife calling him to the television in their home in 2017 because of a statement by Justin Trudeau on television at that time that Admiral Norman, uh, while an, about the Admiral, while an RCMP investigation was underway, but no charges had been laid. What was that, what was that moment like? Well, essentially, uh, when I talked to Mrs. Norman, she, she said, you know, they, they, she watched it, and then she couldn't believe what she had seen, so she was fumbling with the PVR to try to find the clip again. So, 
you know, they they found it and they both watched it. And essentially, the prime minister was saying that that Mark Norman would be uh, headed to court. Um, and for that, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, there no charges had been laid at that point, so that really caught their attention. Um, you know, Norman phoned his lawyer, Marie Hennon, in Toronto. Uh, he had kind of jotted down what the prime minister said. Hennon immediately issued a news release. It was kind of a way out for Trudeau. She was essentially saying, well, you know, uh, the politicians don't, shouldn't comment on, you know, ongoing cases. And, you know, what the prime minister meant to say is, is actually no comment. <laughs> um, the trouble was, uh, you know, a year, almost a year later, uh, Trudeau said the similar thing, same thing, um, in a televised uh, um, uh, press conference from Edmonton. So... Uh, you, you wrote as well extensively about the uh, actual RCMP raid on the Admiral's home, which Mark Norman, uh, you're right, never expected. No, he, he he thought or he told me that he he believed that he would be interviewed because there had been, uh, you know, the ongoing investigation. He was head of the Navy. He was, uh, um, you know, uh, linked to the uh, Project Resolve, as it was called, this uh, conversion of a, a ship, Asterix, to, um, to a naval supply ship. So he figured, you know, he would be called in or the RCMP would, uh, would come to his office and, and interview him. But uh, he's never been interviewed by the RCMP, and instead uh, the raid went down. Well, that's kind of, that's stunning in and of itself that he wasn't interviewed by the RCMP. I spoke with Peter McKay, and I spoke also with Aaron O'Toole uh, last weekend, and uh, you know the story, of course, that they weren't interviewed. Well, Peter was in a very narrow manner, uh, but, uh, but Aaron O'Toole wasn't, and Jason Kenney wasn't. So there, there are questions about how effectively this, uh, this RCMP investigation was undertaken. But on the day of the raid, the RCMP raid, um, General uh, they, they briefed General Vance uh, about the raid, did they not? And and he immediately set the wheels in motion to suspend Admiral Norman. And he he talked to you about the meeting in in John Vance's office that afternoon. How did that go? Well, after uh, after police had left, uh, Norman was summoned to General Vance's office. He uh, went in there at about 6:30 at night. Um, uh, Vance was there with the Deputy Minister John Forster. Uh, Forster, according to uh, to Norman, didn't even look up. Uh, was just seated there. Um, and uh, Norman told me that he thought that uh, Forster was was kind of a, was supposed to be a witness you know, to the whole proceeding. Right. Um, you know, Vance said, uh, you know, I've been given this, uh, uh, you know, uh, information from the RCMP, although I can't tell you what they told me, but, you know, it's very sobering, uh, chilling, that type of thing. And uh, he handed uh, Norman a notice where essentially he was uh, going to suspend him, uh, giving him notice that he was going to suspend his uh, him from uh, military service. And uh, as Admiral Norman left the office or was leaving the office, that's where the line was issued by General Vance. You're in for the fight of your life. That's right, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, now I asked uh, General Vance, uh, General Vance's office for comment on that, and, and they weren't able to provide any. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's what um, Admiral Norman said uh, he was told. Um, after this happened, uh, when when uh, Admiral Norman was removed from his command, there was no reason given 
to the Canadian people. There was no public reason given for days, and that led to the speculation that there might have been something involved. People were speculating espionage, maybe some sexual misadventure, which was entirely unfair to the Norman family. How did they absorb that? Well, it was, uh, you know, the Admiral said that was a, a real tough time for his, uh, for himself. He was uh, receiving emails from uh, naval personnel, uh, senior naval personnel around the world, you know, the people that he had, that he had, uh, you know, worked with, and they were saying, what's going on, what's happening? Um, and there was this 10-day gap where uh, the government and the Canadian forces uh, and the political uh, political uh, folks didn't say what was happening, what, what what it was about. So you had the second highest uh, officer, military officer in the country, who had been suspended, and they wouldn't they wouldn't tell anybody. Uh, eventually, uh, Defense Minister Sajjan came out ten days later and said, "Well, it doesn't have anything to do with national security." So my sources were telling me that uh, you know Canada was getting pressure from the Americans particularly had seen this and uh, and as you know there's been uh, there's other concerns about espionage uh, as a Canadian Navy uh, uh, officer previously and so the Americans wanted to find out what's going on do we have another you know do we have another issue where where information is being provided to the Russians for instance wow. and that's when Sajin came out and said uh, it's got nothing to do with national security but he still wouldn't say what it was about. And, and Mrs. Norman makes a point, well, okay, it's not about national security, but, you know, what are you saying? You're saying my husband's uh, some sexual predator or what, you know? So. They're very disturbing that they wouldn't say anything for 10 days and then wouldn't really be specific. We uh, we, we found out only later what the, what the charge was going to be. Dave, I'm going to run out of time before I run out of questions, so I'm going to speed things up a little bit here and ask you to maybe just fill in some gaps for us. Uh, when, it, when it comes to the issue of the fund, a lot's been said about the, uh, the, the the fact that the federal government was not going to fund the admiral's legal expenses. Other people's expenses were, were, were going to be covered. Trudeau hired lawyers or a lawyer or maybe lawyers to uh, to represent him in case an RCMP investigation required him to go to court. How how nasty were things for the admiral ex- as far as money was concerned? Well, as you know, it's uh, you know any legal uh, challenge is is very expensive, and this had been going on for two years, so. Uh, sources have told me, uh, Admiral Norman uh, said there was a figure out there, $500,000. He said that uh, that's inaccurate. It's multiples of that. Um, I've been told by sources that it's, it's well over a million dollars. I mean, that's just the way our legal system is, right? Um, the other issue there was was that um, this dragged on and on as the federal government um, uh, was less than forthcoming with producing some of the documents uh, that Admiral Norman needed. So, you know, they had to go back, uh, they had to, go back to court each and every time. And, and that, of course, drove up the cost. And you found out that we, the taxpayers, may never know what we spent on the prosecution of the Admiral. Yeah, so I, I asked the Prosecution Service Canada, you know, how much did it cost us? And they said, well, we're not going to tell you. I asked Justice Department, how much did your, uh, you know, Justice Department, because they had lawyers there as well, and they said, well, file an access to information request. So that can take up to seven years to get information on that. Um, so, yeah, we're not, uh, we won't have an idea of what taxpayers spent on this. Um, estimates that I got from, from legal specialists based on, you know, more than two years of, of, uh, of legal uh, being in the court 
courts and police and all that. Uh, you know, we're talking about fifteen million dollars. Wow. And and it and it winds up with a state charge, which is going to be dismissed. Clearly. Well, yeah. So essentially, what happens is uh, Admiral Norman. Uh, if they find new evidence, uh, they could come back and charge Admiral Norman, uh, reactivate the charge within a year. However, uh, you know what the prosecution is, has been saying. They were provided uh, documents uh, eventually by the government as well as Admiral Norman's uh, um, defense team, and and they said after they reviewed those documents, there was there is no uh, possibility of a, of a conviction. Now, you're right. Uh, on the night of Wednesday, May 7th, Norman received a call from Hennon's office. The charges would be stayed, he was told. He's quoted as saying by you, telling you, I knew Marie was in discussions with the Crown, but I had no idea of the specific nature. I didn't know. I didn't want to know. I didn't ask. I had complete faith in Marie and Christine to do what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that. Well, he um, uh, he had a, a crack uh, legal team, um, and uh, and he put um, you know all his faith faith in that, and he was comfortable with what what they were doing. I mean, he was he knew what the various strategies were, but he didn't uh, you know he let them do what they do best, and and so that's you know that's what that's about. Uh, Mrs. Norman told me that she wasn't going to believe it until she heard it, you know, the next day in um, in court. How are they feeling now about all of this, the fact that the charge has been stayed, that they can get on with their lives? He wants to get his old position back. Yep. appears it's not going to happen. Right. Um, how are they feeling about what's, what's taken well, place over the last weeks? Yeah, they're pretty, uh, you know, they're pretty pumped. Uh, they're very happy. They had uh, taken a line of credit out on their house to uh, fund uh, the legal, uh, legal bills. Uh, the government has said that they will now uh, uh, cover his legal costs, although, you know, that still has to be negotiated. So, but they, uh, you know, it's a big weight uh, to be taken off uh, their shoulders to have uh, the charge stayed. What stays with you, Dave, from the conversation that you had with the Admiral? What what has stayed with you? Well, I just, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and fascinating that it got this far. So uh, essentially, he was—he had been told by the previous Conservative government, "This is the ship we want to make it happen." Um, uh, you know, so there there are uh, there's a lot of mysteries into this uh, into this whole process, like why the RCMP never interviewed him, why the RCMP never interviewed some of the previous Conservative ministers who were involved in this in this project. Um, so there's a lot of mystery still there, and again, what was this uh, mystery mystery documents that the judge and the prosecution saw that uh, you know essentially derailed this case? Do you have any idea what that might be? I get the sense that it was probably some direct documents from the previous conservative government saying, now you have to recall that the RCMP was saying that Norman favored this bid from Davy Shipyards to to convert the asterisk. And I would imagine that some of these documents said, no, Norman was was uh, not involved in this, or he was following our orders, and we determined that Asterix was the way that we wanted to go forward. In my conversation with Peter McKay, he made a similar point. He said uh, the Admiral may very well have had clearance to do what he did. 
That's right. So, you know, he may have had, uh, the suggestion is that he's had, clear, had clearance um, to, to talk to Davy direct and that type of thing. And there was sources I talked to said uh, Prime Minister Harper's office uh, was directly involved in some aspects of Asterix and, and what they wanted on the ship. So um, I think if those documents had been introduced, um, then it would have been more difficult to get a conviction. Final question for you, or final point I'd like you to speak to. The Director of Public Prosecutions, Kathleen Roussel, whose name we saw in the SNC case, issued a statement uh, denying there had been political influence in either the decision to charge Norman or the decision to stay that charge. How, how do you feel about that? And has Admiral Norman expressed any any views on that? No, uh, no, he hasn't. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting. She had to put that statement out because there is a lot of a lot of criticism, a lot of suggestion that there had been some kind of political direction, because people were asking, um, you know, why why weren't these documents coming for you know being being produced, and and uh, and there was some interactions between the prosecution service and the Privy Council okay. office as well, right? So that was an issue. Dave, thank you so much for the time. Uh, really, really appreciate you coming on. Outstanding piece. Just everybody has to read this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. David Puglese of the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post. Money laundering in the multiples of billions of dollars, $7.4 billion last year alone in British Columbia. And the British Columbia Attorney General says the party's over. Well, we'll see. Well, I assume it is. Because now the pressure is going to be so Im- immense and intense that it's going to be hard to, uh, to dodge it. And, and we'd be foolhardy, I think, to assume that it's only in British Columbia that money laundering is taking place. I think there's, there's been quite a few stories on, on that as well. Uh, Mike Smith, who writes tremendous columns, is one of the best in the country for the Vancouver province and is a broadcaster at CKNW Radio in Vancouver. You know I'm a big fan of Mike's. And he's very gracious with his time for us on this program. He joins us on the long weekend. Mike, your most uh, recent column in the, in the province is Dirty Cash Train Insider, Ready to Rock BC Money Laundering Inquiry. Now, I want to get at that with you because it's a fascinating column about Ross Alderson, the casino insider. But let me start with this. Dirty money. Where does it originate? Is it China? Is it Canada? Is it globally? Is British Columbia and the rest of Canada just a very convenient place to launder money because our laws are fairly lax and our politicians and regulators haven't been chomping at the bit to get at it? The the report that came out last week, Roy, from the B.C. government traced money laundering activities and, and dirty money flowing into British Columbia from several high-risk jurisdictions around the world, as they called them in this report. So primarily the finger is pointed at China, but they also point to South America, uh, other other countries around the world, Europe as well. But China is, is the country that has taken most of the uh, uh, the accusations here as being the source of a lot of this illicit cash that's been flowing into British Columbia and allegedly distorting our real estate market. Our laws have been pretty convenient for money launderers, though, haven't they? Oh, yeah. There's lots of loopholes. There's lots of ways for drug dealers and other organized criminals to hide their, their source of their cash. 
and it's why, according to the government, British Columbia has been turned kind of into a, a gangster's paradise with criminals bringing their dirty loot here and for many years laundering that money in B.C. casinos while regula- and elsewhere while regulators were kind of turning a blind eye or quite often we've heard stories of reports of suspicious transactions being sent up the line to FinTrack, which is the federal anti-money laundering agency, and then nothing would get done about it. And the one that really set off the alarm bells was last November when a major money laundering case that the RCMP worked on for years spent millions of dollars on. They targeted a company in in um, suburban Vancouver called Silver International, and they laid money laundering charges against the principals there, and there was a lot of hope that this would finally be the breakthrough on a, on a big money laundering case and a big conviction. And just before the case was to, about to go to trial, it unraveled last fall, and the charges were stayed. The explanations we've heard is there were mistakes made by the prosecution that, that co- collapsed the case. And that's one that really, I think, was a kick in the in the teeth for a lot of people, in, in, especially in Vancouver, who have watched the price of homes soar beyond their reach if you're not, if you're not a millionaire. So I think the government is responding to the public pressure on it in calling this public inquiry, Roy, but he, he, make no mistake about it, too, though. There's a lot of politics going on here. This thing, this thing has been a political weapon for the NDP to attack the Liberals and the former Liberal government, and I'm sure they're hoping the Liberals continue to take more damage from this inquiry. Mm-hmm. So it could have an election any time in British Columbia, given the narrow margins by which the uh, the NDP uh, governs. Now, you, you, you write in your column, Dirty Cash Train Insider, ready to rock BC money laundering inquiry. You write about Ross Alderson, former director of the anti-money laundering at the BC Lottery Corporation, in 2015 being ready to reveal what he knows to the public, inquiry, on money laundering in the province. He has a lengthy career at the Lottery Corporation, and he's written many internal reports on suspicious cash transactions. Can you share some of that with the rest of us who aren't really all that familiar with what's happening on the inside of this issue in British Columbia? Yeah, sure. This guy is a very interesting guy, Roy. He's, as you mentioned, he was the head of anti-money laundering operations for the BC Lottery Corporation, which is the crown corporation in, in BC that oversees uh, casino gambling. One of the places that he spent a lot of time was the River Rock Casino in Richmond near Vancouver, the biggest casino in British Columbia. And he said he was shocked watching the massive scale of cash transactions of very suspicious nature in that casino. A lot of British Columbians were shocked here by the surveillance video that has been released from that particular casino, showing people walking in literally with shopping bags, uh, backpacks, just bulging with cash, and bringing out these gangster rolls of $20 bills and these rolls held together with rubber bands and cashing them in for casino chips, go and do some gambling and then cash out and get a check from uh, the casino, which you can then go deposit at a bank. This has become known as the Vancouver model of uh, money laundering to our ignominy here in, in B.C. So this is kind of shocking. This guy is a key insider. He said he had a front row seat for all this stuff. He wrote a, several internal reports blowing the whistle on it. 
and he's very happy that they've called a public inquiry here, and he wants to testify. I'm sure he's one of many insiders that will appear in front of this committee when it gets up and running, and I'm, I got a feeling their, test, their testimony is going to get a lot of attention and maybe shock a lot of people. Yeah, Mike, I remember the last time we spoke about this money laundering issue, and you talked about these rolls, big rolls of $20 bills. Uh, that had just wandered or were brought into the casino and were nicely washed, and <laughs> right, and uh, and then they uh, left in the form of checks, and the deed was done. But Mr. Alderson says, and reading your column, told you, people need to go to jail. Are there people cringing hearing those words from Russ Alderson? I think so. Although it remains to be seen whether this. Committee of Commission of Inquiry will result in any kind of charges or convictions on on anybody. Remember that a Committee of Inquiry cannot lay criminal charges directly, although if you take a look at the terms of reference for this particular public inquiry, it says that the commissioner here, who was a B.C. Supreme Court judge and the former lead prosecutor for the whole province when he was a, a crown prosecutor, that he must work with the police and that if he uncovers any evidence of wrongdoing, that he should share that with the police. These are very similar terms of reference that they had in Quebec with the Charbonneau Commission there in that province into corruption in the construction industry. And that particular inquiry in Quebec did lead to people being charged, people being prosecuted, convicted, and throwing, thrown in jail, and they did actually manage to recover a lot of misspent public money there as well. So there's a lot of high hopes here in British Columbia that maybe this inquiry will be able to have similar success, but it's a tough nut to crack, this money laundering. Um, there's a lot of rabbit holes and loopholes that the criminals can use to keep their, keep their work, their dealing secret, as we all know. But I think there's a lot of public support for this inquiry as it begins. We'll see what it accomplishes. Mike, let's uh, get at something else here that you write about, and that is the biggest betting casino gamblers tied to the real estate industry makes sense when you look at the kind of money that's in play. And as you pointed out at the beginning, the what's happening to real estate prices or what has happened already to real estate prices. Uh, can you put that together for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've had an, an increase in real estate prices in Metro Vancouver of around 70% over five years. So the price of a home for a lot of people in Vancouver has just soared beyond their reach. And we've seen a lot of reports blaming money laundering, primarily cash, dirty cash generated from drug dealing, perhaps being one of the things that's driving this hyperinflated real estate market. The fellow that I profile in my column in the province newspaper today that we've been talking about, Russ, Russ, Ross Alderson, who's the former head of money laundering for the Lottery Corporation. He put together uh, several internal reports there that were one of the first to identify this and, and blow the whistle on these links. And in back in September 2016, he did a report where he analyzed the top 100 highest rolling gamblers in BC casinos, known as the whale gamblers. And he determined that of those 100 high rolling gamblers, 97 were Asian, primarily from mainland China, that these 100 gamblers accounted for more than half of all the big cash transaction in the casinos. 
And when he did an analysis of their declared occupations, the number one occupation listed was real estate. So this is one of the first studies and reports that started start, started sounding the alarm bells about the potential links between drug dealing, organized crime, money laundering in casinos, and potentially all of this fueling these skyrocketing real estate prices that we've seen in Vancouver. And it's a very disturbing picture that's kind of been put together like a jigsaw puzzle for the public. And because everybody's sort of seen this in front of their eyes. They see thousands of people dying from drug overdose deaths. They see housing prices soaring beyond what anything they can afford. They see the video the surveillance videos of all this cash being dumped onto the into the cages at these BC casinos. And for a lot of people it's just been the shock that my God, it's all connected. And this is one of the things that has fueled the demand for this public inquiry. And the government's given it to them, Roy, and it's going to be fascinating to watch this inquiry get ramped up and see what it uncovers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, yeah. the, for, for years, people in the rest of the country have been saying, you know, if you have a house, if, let's say you owned a home in Vancouver, yeah. and let's say it's worth um, half a million bucks in, in the city that we're in, where, wherever that might be, or a million dollars in the city that we're in, wherever that might be, somebody's going to knock on your door if you're in Vancouver, and they're going to offer you $2 million for the house. Yeah. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be great? Well, we know what was going on. Yeah, the the real estate market has softened here considerably here in the in the last year or so, but but that was the story for a, quite a few years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the damage has been done, and yeah. the the housing prices in Vancouver bore absolutely no relation to the economic conditions in the city and and the the salaries that people were earning. And a lot of people just thought, what is going on here? I mean, we 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 see the the drug dealing that's going on. Yeah. We see people driving around the city in Lamborghinis and Ferraris. We see a house that was affordable a few years ago. Now you can't afford it if you're not a millionaire. And for a lot of people, they've seen the evidence before in their own eyes, and they and they didn't look right. Something was wrong. Yeah. And a lot of people have, are buying into this argument that it's it has to do with runaway, rampant, unaccounted crime and unchecked criminal money laundering. So, Mike, how much enthusiasm is there for this public inquiry among the political ranks? I see from your, again, from your column that former liberal government members are split on on their support for the public inquiry. But where where's the support and where where is it lacking? Well, the liberals were in power for 16 years before they were re- replaced by the current NDP government in 2017. And a lot of this money laundering, according to the reports that we've seen, really reached a peak while the Liberals were in power. So they're very politically exposed on this issue. They've taken a lot of damage with some of the reports that have come out so far. And last week, they, I guess they, you could say they put up a pretty kind of a brave face in the uh, when this public inquiry was announced, saying that they'll cooperate with the inquiry, they, you know, they, they support this commissioner who's been put in place. But I think secretly, they're very nervous about the potential damage and continuing damage that the Liberals could take on, with this inquiry. And if you take a look at the timing of it, the commission is is scheduled to report out in uh, basically a, quick, a two-year time frame. So a final report expected by May 2021. The next scheduled election in B.C. is October 2021, 
five months later after <laughs> this report is scheduled to come out. So a lot of liberals are looking at that and thinking this is a political timetable, and they're uh, per- putting on their flak jackets and preparing to take some damage on it, some more damage, I would say. Mike, I always thank you for the time. You're, you're just a terrific reporter and uh, and a news gatherer, great journalist, and, I, and you're very kind to us with your time. Thanks so well, very that's much. Very, that's very kind of you to say, Roy, anytime. Okay. Mike Smith, Vancouver Province, CKNW Radio, and he is just an outstanding journalist. You can't look the other way when you go to fill up your vehicle because, well, it's staring at you, the prices. And uh, the prices are going up dramatically with fuel. Again, British Columbians are the ones uh, who are facing the highest prices. Other parts of the country, it's a little less. Alberta, so what's buck fourteen a liter, and uh, in Ontario, it's about a buck twenty-six. Kind of all over the place, except for the folks on the west coast. And uh, the Angus Reid Institute conducted a national poll on the impact of gasoline prices on people and what it and what it's doing to people. I'm just looking at the headline here: gas pain. Four in ten say rising prices at the pump are making it harder to afford necessities. And I think we should start there. With Shachi Curl, who's the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute, she joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Hi, Shachi, and can you put that into perspective for us? That's a big number. Hi, Roy. Yeah, uh, what it means is that it's not just that people are noticing that they're paying extra costs for the price per liter at the pump, or that yeah, oh, it doesn't feel great, but you know that's the price it is. You got to pay it. It is actually having a significant impact on their own wallets. And if you are a lower-income driver in this country and in the uh, suburban and rural areas of this country, those increases uh, of cost per liter uh, are having, um, are, are forcing drivers to really make some decisions as to what am I not going to buy, what am I not going to pay for, what am I not going to spend on in order to be able to gas my car, my truck, so I can get to work, so my kids can get to school, so we can do what we need to do. Yeah. This is a big, big, big problem. And again, particularly, as you point out, if you live in a a rural area where you have no choice but to travel, or if you use your vehicle as your place of business, you have no choice but to travel. And if the gas prices go up significantly, then your power to spend goes down just as significantly. And as you say, you're stuck trying to figure out what is I I can afford and what can I not afford. That's awful. That's an awful predicament. It is, and and we're seeing people starting to have to take some some different measures. They are reducing the amount that they drive. Uh, We're seeing that particularly in Atlantic Canada. They're buying less gas. You know, instead of gassing the car up entirely, it's maybe putting 5 or $10 in. Uh, You might be driving outside city limits in urban areas, particularly if if you've got a significant number of of urban taxes on on gas to go up to maybe... uh, less uh, um, urban areas to, to buy cheaper gas. Um, there's also those, especially in British Columbia, who are, who are going across the border to buy gas. Uh, they can do that. Metro Vancouver is 
not a really far drive from from Blaine, Washington. And then there are people who actually say that they're using transit a little bit more, but you see that restricted to um, the provinces that have the biggest cities. It's happening more in BC, in Ontario, in Quebec, where the infrastructure for public transit exists, and that's a choice. And for those who can make that choice, that's great. Um, But again, not something that everyone is able to do. Who do they blame? It's interesting. You know, uh, Roy, you and I have always had conversations about how there is no one blanket opinion in this country. There is no average Canadian, and, and you see that really strikingly on this question. In this country, if you live in B.C., if you live in Quebec, you're much more likely to blame the oil companies and their desire to maximize profits. If you live in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, or Ontario, you're blaming the government and government taxes, whether that's metro taxes, provincial taxes, or federal taxes. In Alberta, Alberta would, you know, uh, the, 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 the real heartland of, of oil and gas production in our country, it's neither government taxes that they, that they are turning to in a majority voice, nor is it the oil companies. They are the most likely in this country to say it's actually economic market forces. And of course, they have an up-close front seat to what economic market forces can do to, to economies and people's households. You know, if we're this close now, if we have 40% of the population of this country saying that gas prices are at a level where they have to make decisions on what essentials they can and cannot afford, we're, we're right at the edge then, because you, you can't go much beyond 40% without getting into a national crisis. And, and I, would, I would argue if 40% of the population is having trouble because of gas prices, meeting uh, you know, their, their essential requirements, you're already at a crisis point. It's it's a it is a it is uh, something that I think governments, particularly uh, heading into uh, their own various uh, election cycles, have to be alive to affordability. Roy is uh, something that touches everyone in different ways. So if you're a young person living in a city, your affordability is is, uh, driven a lot around your ability to to pay rent or or pay a mortgage. Uh, Higher gas prices uh, adds more pressure to that. If you're a pensioner, affordability has a lot to do with uh, your prescription drug coverage and how much of it is covered and how much of it you're dipping into your own nest egg to pay for costly drugs. Uh, Higher gas prices dips into adds to the pressure around that so everyone is feeling that pressure mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and but you know what's interesting is they don't all lay the uh, the responsibility at the same place and so you do see it quite politicized surprise surprise in this country yeah. if you're somebody who's inclined to, to sit on the right hand side of the political spectrum you're also more likely to say that uh, it's government taxes that are driving this if you li- live on the center or the center left side of the political spectrum much more likely to say that it's either economic market forces or the oil companies and so when you hear the prime minister saying we're watching it it's a serious issue um, there are many who are already having decided that they're not going to vote for him say well you know Trudeau this is your fault for those on the left side of the spectrum they're looking to their governments and, and particularly in British Columbia where people are being hardest hit by this you know gas at a dollar seventy a dollar seventy eight uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty 
experience out here on the West Coast. Um, And they're both looking to their provincial and federal government saying, look, what are you going to do? Are you going to bring in a a maximum cap like you have in the Atlantic provinces and in Quebec? What are you going to do to give us some relief? And uh, and you better believe government is watching this at both levels as a result. Well, it's called leadership, and people expect and want leadership. You know, uh, I can't remember how many years ago it was. Obviously, it was a number of years, but I was on the air sitting in this very studio, and I said to people, we were talking about gas prices, Shachi, and I said to people, look, gasoline is going to go to a dollar a liter. And I was getting phone calls saying, oh, you're just, you're off your rocker. That's never going to be a dollar a liter. Nobody could afford a dollar a liter. Well, if it were a dollar a liter, I think we'd all be very, very happy right about now. Oh, wouldn't we all? (laughs) Wouldn't we all? Um, Look, you know, the other interesting piece of this, Roy, is that, again, for those who have a choice, and consumers don't have a lot of choices. I mean, we've been listening for years to car manufacturers talk about how affordable hybrid electric vehicles are just around the corner. You know? affordability is a relative thing if you can afford to buy one great but for most people a a gas-powered car is still cheaper than a hybrid electric or fully electric car Mm -hmm. you think that there aren't a lot of consumers out out there right now today that would prefer to move into something more uh, affordable and less dependent on those fluctuating oil prices they would love to so uh, there aren't a lot of uh, options for consumers they're stuck with what they have Similarly, if you're outside of a city, you can't say, well, I'm going to leave the car at home and get on the the metro train or the bus or do something else. But uh, for those who have those options, we're noticing that they are certainly taking those options up. Well, isn't there a a certain politician who suggested that you could take out an equity loan on your home and buy an electric vehicle? I sort of remember... I remember something about that. Set that. Well, set, we'll set that aside. I will set that aside. I will so, point out. That I just want to say this. I just want to say this. We were talking about EVs last weekend on this program, and talking to people who drive them and people who love them. And I heard from uh, others, other people across the country, saying, "Yeah, but they don't pay." the gasoline taxes for the maintenance of the infrastructure of our roads. Well, we're going to be doing a story in one hour's time with a reporter from the Chicago Tribune, business reporter from the Tribune, because the state of Illinois, Shachi, is talking about or considering raising the fees for owning electric vehicle, now get this, to an annual $1,000 from $17.50. Well, That's the state of Illinois because they're saying the same thing. Look, you've got an EV. You're not paying any taxes for fuel. Therefore, you're not helping to sustain uh, the costs of maintaining infrastructure. But going from $17.50 to 1000 bucks a year. That's well, what they're we, considering. We all got to pay our fair share in life. I mean, that's, we do. Yeah. that's just life. Yes, we do. That's what we got to do. Thanks for the time. Always good talking to you. It's my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Shachi Curl, Executive Director of the Angus Reed Group. GasBuddy.com. I was reading the energy view from uh, Friday by our good friend Dan McTague, GasBuddy.com, senior uh, petroleum analyst. And Dan's analysis begins with these words. The mood on markets continues to favor geopolitical risks rather than jitters over the U.S.-China trade dispute, which caused oil to drop at the beginning of the month. Okay, Dan, in English, (laughs) what's going on? 
it's a tug of war. Uh, you know, no better way to describe it. But uh, if you're looking at uh, where demand will go this summer, obviously it does go up, especially in the United States, where the economy is extremely strong there. I know there's bad news for some people on the political front, but economically they're doing very, very well. Uh, but, it, uh, you know, with concerns about this Chinese-U.S. Uh, trade uh, war, uh, and it seems to be escalating, there is every indication that demand could drop and that we might see in some countries... Uh, uh, you know, growth come to a standstill and perhaps even tip into recessions. That's the negative news. The positive news, of course, uh, is that uh, there is a significant tightening of global supplies of oil. And that's not just because of what's happening in the Middle East in terms of OPEC cutting back on production. It's also a number of other countries that are having trouble getting oil out to uh, Mexico, Venezuela, Libya. And, uh, of course, with U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and Iran, it's likely that that could uh, lead to much higher prices of the pumps versus the, uh, you know, where we take this with, with traders and investors and speculators who think, well, the world is coming apart if uh, there's this you know, magnification of a trade war between the United States and China that could uh, push prices down. So there's your tug of war. Both are fighting each other. And in the same week, we see prices go up and go down. We saw a little bit here on the weekend with a long weekend here in Canada. Everyone thought it was just, you know, good old-fashioned gouging. <laughs> it has everything to do with what's happening in the United States market, which really looms large. So there's no way for us to really, with any certainty, predict what's going to be happening over the next three, four, five, six months. No, and I think anybody who knows what's going to happen over the next three, four, five weeks uh, would be a lot better and probably more successful at picking lottery numbers. And I know that sounds flippant Mm. and tongue-in-cheek, but uh, it's that serious. And many of us who have looked at this over the years know that it's not the time to make those wild, long-term bets. Uh, I thought 2019 would be the most expensive year going back to 2014 because governments have helped themselves to ever-increasing taxes, getting, of course, with Ottawa backstopping taxes in uh, in provinces like Ontario, New Brunswick, uh, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. But we've seen oil drop and uh, the panic a little bit on the markets, and that's uh, one of the reasons why we're paying, uh, in many parts of the country, the lowest prices except for Vancouver, the lowest prices we've seen uh, for May 2-4 going back to about uh, 2017. So if we were to try to guess, or best guess, what the highest price might be, between now and uh, and and autumn, could we even do that? No, it's going to be hard to do that because we're we're hugging in the one thirty range as an average. Um, we know that uh, sooner or later Vancouver prices will have to come down. Uh, that could drop maybe as much as ten cents a liter between now and some point in June. Uh, not much lower than that, and it'll still remain within record territory. But the rest of the country could see equal, you know, inc- decreases of about five cents a liter. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see average prices go down to 125 across Canada. At the same time, uh, reversal of fortunes, um, you know, uh, suddenly there's more tension. Uh, something happens in the Middle East, another drone attack, a super tanker gets hit. Uh, the bets are off. You're back up to, you know, 10, 15 cents where we are now, which pushes back to a dollar forty a liter. So this really, again, makes the case that we need to be able to move our supplies, our oil. We need, we need pipelines. Absolutely. And, you know, Roy, the big issue here that a lot of people tend to overlook, forget all the loss of investments, the thousands of jobs lost, and everyone else is supplying us oil at a very precarious time, your Canadian dollar. I mean, frankly, to use a a term my kids love, it sucks. 
And, uh, you know, the, the Canadian dollar continues to languish because we're not selling enough oil to the rest of the world. We're still stuck selling 3.8 million barrels. That's all we can get. If we could increase that by 500,000 or a million barrels, you'd see the Canadian dollar rise our uh, purchasing power. Every one of us would see it uh, rise dramatically. In the case of gasoline alone, you'd be saving 20 cents a liter. But think of all the other things you and I consume, from the food to the uh, to the uh, devices that we use, anything that has a, uh, an international commodity price to it if the Canadian government and the people uh, in this country had the leadership in intestinal fortitude to push back the uh, the environmental uh, lobbyists who have been very successful in vandalizing our uh, energy sector, we'd be a whole lot better off financially and there wouldn't be the kind of national and uh, regional debts that I've seen growing at a very alarming rate from coast to coast. Thank you for your, uh, for your sage counsel, Dan. I really appreciate it always. Always a good to be here. Thanks for having me again, Roy. Thanks. Best to you. And Bye-bye. Everything. Dan Bye-bye. McTague, Senior Petroleum Analyst at GasBuddy.com. And uh, you can read Dan's uh, energy views. Uh, I think they're out daily. If they're not out daily, it's close to daily at GasBuddy.com. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.